The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. First Chronicles chapter 11, and I want to speak to you this morning on the subject, how to kill a lion in a pit on a snowy day. You might be wondering why this topic. There is no snow here. There are no lions here, unless you go to the zoo, perhaps. And I don't plan to be anywhere near any kind of a pit. But I think there's some valuable lessons for us to learn here today. I chose this text because it deals with some very practical problems that we all wrestle with from time to time. You may have faced some of these problems already this year. You may be dealing with them this week. And I chose this text because it deals with a proper perspective and approach to our problems. So we're going to talk about how to kill a lion in a pit on a snowy day. We get through the text, I think you'll see what I mean, I think you'll agree, and I think we'll all find some help here this morning. Look with me, please, at 1 Chronicles 11, verse 20. The Bible says, And Abishai, the brother of Joab, he was chief of the three. And I'll explain a little bit of this in a moment. For lifting up his spear against 300, he slew them and had a name among the three. Of the three, he was more honorable than the two. Excuse me, for he was their captain, howbeit he attained not to the first three. That sounds a bit confusing, but we'll come back to it. Verse 22, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man named Kabziel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Also he went down and slew a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And he slew an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits high. And in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and had the name among the three mighties. I'll read verse 25 as well. Behold, he was honorable among the thirty, but attained not to the first three, and David set him over his guard." David had a group of 30 mighty men chosen from the ranks of Israel. And from that group, because of their notable deeds, we find record of two smaller groups of three men in each group. These were the heroes of the day, the, 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 the warriors of the day, the front lines fighting men of the day. The first group, only two of which are mentioned here in 1 Chronicles 11, are found in verses 11 and 12, uh, Jashobim and Eleazar, the son of Dodo. I'm glad my dad's name is not Dodo, aren't you? Uh, The third one of that group is Shammah. His name is mentioned in in the parallel account in 2 Samuel 23. But those men, and the story's right here and in another place, those men broke through the host of the Philistines to get David water from the well at Bethlehem. In verses 20 through 25, we just read, we meet the second group, (coughs) of which only two are mentioned in this chapter. Abishai killed 300 men with a spear in verse 20, and then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. It might surprise you to know that there are nine Benaiahs in the Bible. This one is called honorable in our text. He is noted in verse 25 for his loyalty to David. 
He became captain of David's bodyguards. Uh, His family most likely sided with David against Absalom during that rebellion. Later in uh, 1 Chronicles 27, David appointed him over a division of 24,000 men. In 1 Kings 1, his family was loyal to David, and after David's death, they helped install Solomon as the king. And after David's death in 1 Kings 2, at the direction of Solomon, Benaiah killed three of David's enemies, the enemies of David's family, Adonijah, Joab, and Shimei. I recently read a book called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day by Mark Batterson. It's a good book. I recommend it. It's a book about leadership and taking risk and seizing opportunity and conquering your fears. I'm not going that direction today, but I want to take a practical look at this Bible story, and I want us to see here what the Lord would have us learn, because all things were written aforetime for our learning. And though there's not a lot of explanation here, there are some clues in this story that will help us learn what it means to kill a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Let's take a look at these three great acts of valor against the enemies of Israel. And so first this morning, I just want us to look at Benaiah's enemies, his enemies. In verse 22, we we see that he killed two lion-like men of Moab. Lion-like means warrior, ferocious, and brave. The best Moab had, perhaps comparable to David killing Goliath. Well, who was Moab? The Moabites were a tribe living on the borders of Israel. We have the uh, um, unpleasant story in Genesis 19 of Lot. After being rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah, his two daughters got him drunk, and they each had a child by him. One was Benami, the father of the Ammonites, and the other was Moab, the father of the Moabites. They were closely related to Israel through, uh, uh, as a descendant of Lot, Abraham's uh, nephew, and they were always the enemies of Israel. Everywhere you read of Moab through the Bible, they are a picture of one of our enemies, the flesh. In the New Testament, it is called the flesh. It's also referred to as the old self, the old life, the old man. The Moabites were a thorn in Israel's side for the entire history of Israel. This old life, this old self dwells within us also, and and it's related to us, it's part of us. We can't get rid of it. It kind of lives in the back room of our house, and and we're ashamed of it. We don't want the flesh to be seen. We don't want our fleshly lust to consume us. We want to be rid of it. We're constantly fighting it, but we can't seem to get completely free of it. Paul knows about this struggle. In Romans 6, he said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And he goes on to describe that struggle. And in 1 Peter 2.11, we're admonished to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And those are contrary, these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Well, thank God if you'll read Romans 6, 7, and 8, And the rest of Galatians 5, you'll find that there is a path to daily victory over the flesh. We can have victory, and we can experience victory after victory, but the issue here is that the flesh always keeps coming back. Moab always keeps coming back. It's an ever-present enemy. It's a constant struggle and a constant fight. So Moab represents the flesh. We have a second enemy here in the picture of him slaying the Egyptian warrior. This warrior was seven and a half feet tall. 
His spear was like a weaver's beam. That's six or seven inches thick. It would be like carrying a sharpened flagpole. I mean, it was a big dude. This guy was, was in the league with Goliath, even though he might not have been quite as tall as him. But you might already have figured this out. But Egypt is also a type or a picture of an enemy throughout the scripture. And that's the enemy of the world. We're in a constant battle against the flesh and we're in a constant battle against the world. Egypt was a leading nation of the world, the leading nation of the world in this day, a superpower admired by all nations for their temples and their libraries and their architecture and their academic prowess. They were a beautiful picture, negative in a negative sense, but they were a perfect picture of superficial impressiveness the empty glory of the world and its ways. When Jesus, I referred to this yesterday, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple and he was shown all the kingdoms of the world with all their power and glory. I think I got that wrong. He was taken on a high mountain and shown all the kingdoms of the world, right? But anyway, he was shown all the kingdoms of the world and that's what is symbolized by Egypt. Strikingly puzzling here, the Israelites. I studied through and I taught through the Pentateuch when I was a pastor. I set out to preach through the whole Bible and uh, I started in the book of Genesis in my adult Sunday school class and I wanted to be like W.A. Criswell. You might know that name from, from years ago down in Texas, but I wanted to preach through the whole Bible during the course of my pastoral ministry and when I resigned 16 years later, I was in the book of Ruth. I never made it through the whole Bible. But in Exodus and Numbers, and particularly in Deuteronomy, you find the history of Israel. And it's always puzzling how two things were very common. They were always complaining, and they were always longing to go back to Egypt. And, and that's hard to understand. They forgot the bondage and the cruelty and the slavery and the tears and the heartache. They remembered some of the very few good things there was in the world. But what it's a picture of is, is the world's ways and philosophies and, and its pursuit of pomp and prestige and pride and status. And that has a drawing power on our hearts. And if we're not careful, and if we don't maintain this war, we don't wage this war every single day against the flesh, we're going to lose against the flesh. And if we don't wage this war against the allurement of the world, we're going to lose that battle as well. And then we come to verse 22 and we see that he slew a lion in a pit on a snowy day. I'm sure you already know by now what enemy this represents. This represents the devil. Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Here's an enemy who is sinister and deceitful and cunning. And like a lion, he has tremendous power and authority. He's ferocious. He's on the hunt looking for someone to devour. That's what 1 Peter 5, 8 says. You know that when Satan came to God in the book of Job and God said, Satan, uh, uh, said unto Satan, whence comest thou? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. What was he doing? He was looking for someone to attack. He was looking for some life that was vulnerable that he could... He could, he, could, he could corrupt and he could turn against God. In Luke 22, when Jesus said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as sweet. That phrase, desired to have you, means the devil has been earnestly asking for you. We have a ferocious enemy that comes against us nonstop. 
So we've all been and we are being confronted regularly with these enemies. And these one-sentence stories in the life of one of David's mighty men symbolizes for us that there is a path to victory over the flesh. We've felt the attack of the flesh. We have fought it against it. Moab sneaking up on us when we're least expecting it, when our guard is down. But I mentioned Romans 6, 7, and 8 earlier. If you'll soak your heart and your mind in those three chapters and learn the principle of the exchanged life, you can experience some of that victory. If you'll go to Galatians 5 and soak your mind and your heart in the war of the flesh against the Spirit and learn to walk in the Spirit, you can experience victory over the flesh. The world, we all feel the drawing power of the world and its attractiveness And the world is always kind of sending out this message to us, look what you're missing out on. Look what you could have. Like life is passing you by. And and there are times maybe in our own hearts as, as believers that we have longed for the things of the world. But here's a great passage of scripture to help us get victory over that. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, listen to this. This is a stark contrast. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So what's the key to victory over the world in that, in that portion of Scripture? Here it is. If you develop a passionate love for the Lord Jesus, it will displace a love for the world. Then, then, of course, the enemy of the devil. We certainly all are facing a, a sense, maybe at times, a, a sense of tremendous dread of the forces of evil. Maybe you felt frightened and terrified at some point in your life by this terrifying enemy. And the path to victory over the devil is submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the path to victory over the flesh is to be filled with the Spirit of God and controlled by the Spirit of God. The path to victory over the world is a passionate love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the greatest commandment of all, isn't it? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And the path to victory over the devil is submission to God. Benaiah's enemies, we all face them. Let's look at Benaiah's victory. And I want to focus for the next few minutes here on his victory in the pit on the snowy day. He slew a lion, not a bobcat, (laughs) not a house cat, uh, not a wild boar. He slew a lion. You, first thing I want to know about this story that's not explained to us in the scripture is who was in the pit first? Was the lion in the pit and Benaiah jumped in? That would be nuts. Or was Benaiah in the pit and the lion jumped in? That would create the biggest adrenaline rush anybody's ever experienced in the history of the world. (laughs) But you would agree with me that either way, whoever was in that pit first, there's a whole lot of fear, there's a whole lot of adrenaline going on, and man, this is a serious situation. You would agree that the lion is probably the most dangerous of the three enemies that are mentioned in this chapter. The lion-like men of Moab, fierce warriors, the the, uh, the Egyptian who was seven and a half foot tall, but this lion, you know, it's no coincidence that he's called the king of beasts. 
claws several inches long that can rip your body to shreds with one stroke. A lion's paw is so powerful that if one slap of his paw against your skull, he can crush your skull like, like cracking an egg. That's among the strongest bone structures in our body, but a lion can cave it in with no problem. A lion's jaws are so powerful they can bite through any bone of the human body like crunching or tortilla chip. Would you agree with me this is the worst possible enemy? And then he slew the lion in a pit. He met this lion in the worst possible place, in a, in a pit where there's no retreat. Now, if I were going to fight a lion, I want the lion in a strong steel cage, and I want to be outside the cage with a high-powered rifle. That's how I want to fight a lion. But he met the lion in a pit, so he met the worst possible enemy in the worst possible place. And then he met him on a snowy day. Well, that makes it very treacherous and slippery, and it's hard to grip a weapon in the cold. I grew up in South Florida. Winter's only six weeks long down there. There's no snow. But I've lived in the north for most of my life, and I know what it's like to be cold. I know what it's like to be in the snow. I've seen it deep and treacherous. I've seen people fall and break bones. I've seen terrible car crashes on slippery roads. But Benaiah met this lion. In the, he met the worst possible enemy in the worst possible place under the worst possible circumstances. And while symbolically this represents our enemy, the devil, I want us to make it very practical this morning. All of us face lions in our life, bitter enemies of our soul and our spirit. All of us have something in our life, and maybe more than one something, that strikes fear in our heart. Maybe it just flashed into your mind right now. Maybe it's something you're dealing with today. Maybe it's something you're afraid you're going to have to deal with. Uh, maybe it's something that's kind of always on the horizon of your mind. It's always there. It's, it's a nagging fear. It's a nagging worry. Maybe it's the fear of a physical disease or affliction. Maybe there's a history of diabetes in your family and you fear that. Or there's heart disease in your family's history and you fear that. Or maybe uh, you fear having a brain tumor or you fear having cancer someday or Maybe it's the fear of a crushing disappointment. Maybe it's the fear of a loved one being taken away from you so that you're left alone. Maybe it's some just deep besetting fear that you just, you just can't shake it. It's always there in the back of your mind. And if you let it, it'll take over your mind and you can be gripped by it. I want you to know most of these fears are unfounded fears. Most of them are simply weapons and uh, tools of the devil to distract you from serving the Lord. A pastor was trying to help a lady in his church one time who was, she was known for being a, a worrier, not warrior, worrier. <laughs> she worried a lot, okay? You get that? And he said to this lady, he's trying to help her, he said, ma'am, do you understand that 85% of what you worry about never happens? He thought that would help her, but her answer was, well, see, it works. <laughs> So Benaiah's enemies and then Benaiah's victory. And now let's look at Benaiah's valor, his valor. What we want to know from this story is, is how did he do it? And what can we learn from it? 
The whole focus of the story is that he killed this lion in a pit on a snowy day. How did he do it? It's not explained to us in the scripture here, but I believe there are certain clues that tell us how he won the battle. And these clues are going to reveal the source of strength for our victory over our lion, over the fears of our life. Note please again verse 22, and we have a reference here to his father, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man named Kebzeel. I'm sorry, I think that probably is his grandfather, <coughs> who had done many acts. So these are called valiant men. His father and his grandfather are called valiant men. And, and I would guess by reading verse 22 and his name among the mighties, we see that Benaiah is just a chip off the old block. He has an honorable place in the history of David's mighty men. So he was a mighty man of valor. How else could you accomplish what he did? I want you to know it wasn't the victories that made him mighty. He was already mighty. The victories only revealed who he was. That They revealed that what he had in him, or sorry, he had in him what it took to win such battles and, and reach such victories. But where did the valor come from? I want to suggest, and you know this, in the Bible, a person's name is very significant. In the Bible, in almost every mention of this man that we're looking at this morning, he is called Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. So there's a, there's a link to his father's name that's very important to identify who he is, but also to identify his character. Biblical names are purposely given and they become clues to the character of a person, and there's a lot of evidence of that throughout the Scripture. In Genesis, God taught the whole world a lesson by one man's name. His name was Methuselah. Methuselah means when he dies, judgment will come. The flood came after Methuselah died. Can you imagine, have you ever thought about this, can you imagine how they watched Methuselah everywhere he went? Now, you don't let anything happen to that guy. Let's keep an eye on him. What do you mean you left him by himself? Who's watching him today? Did you leave his walker by his bed? You know, the one with the wheels in the front, the tennis balls in the back. We don't want him getting out of bed and falling. We don't want him falling off a cliff someday. And sure enough, when Methuselah died, the flood came. That's a picture, by the way, of the grace of God because he lived to be 969 years old, older than anybody's ever lived. God's long-suffering. He showed that through the name Methuselah. Sometimes the character of a man is changed and God changes his name. For example, Jacob, trickster, schemer, deceiver, through the transforming wrestling match with God, he became Israel, prince with God. Abram, exalted father, was changed to Abraham, father of many nations. Isaiah had two sons, Maher Shalahashbaz and Shir Jeshub. By the time you called those boys to lunch, the food was already cold. Mayor Shalahashbaz means hasting swift to the prey. And it was a testimony to Israel through Isaiah that God had judged Israel and they would be taken captive by another nation. And Shir Jashub means the remnant will return. And that was also a message sent to Israel that God would preserve them through the captivity. So if you, know the, if you want to know the meaning and character of a man, you can just look at his name. So what does the name Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, mean? So if you put these two names together, we're going to start with his father, Jehoiada. And I love this. I hope you take this home with you. Jehoiada means 
God knows. God knows. Do you know wherever you are right now and whatever you're going through right now and whatever fear you're facing right now? God knows. And it is Him who has brought you to this place to face this fear. It is God who has brought you here. I I recently read a book called The Legacy of Sovereign Joy. And the idea of the book, in part at least, is that those who fully embrace the sovereignty of God in their lives find a contented joy and rest that can be obtained no other way. You know what helps you so much in the trials of life? It's just to stop and tell yourself, God knows. God knows. He's sovereign. He, oper- he operates by the providence of his will and his good pleasure. And it's a, it's a, it would be a wonderful thing if we just regularly tell ourselves, God knows. You're facing a lion you never wanted to meet and may seem to be to you may seem to you to be the most ferocious enemy, the most hurtful thing that can happen. You can't escape it. It's right there in front of you. It's the worst possible foe in the worst possible place under the worst possible circumstances. And it'll help you to know God knows. He hasn't lost control. He's still sovereign. He's still in charge. He knows where you are and he chose that place for you. That's what scripture reveals to us. He put you where you are and directed you to this place. And Jesus tells us that the hairs of our head are numbered. He knows everything, absolutely everything about us. And he brought it into our life for a purpose. And for some reason in the life of Benaiah, God put Benaiah in a pit, in a lion, with, on a, uh, with a lion on a snowy day. There's more to that. Not only does God know, but he feels what you feel. He, it, that's the most comforting thing. You've been mistreated. You've been betrayed. You're fearing something in life. Jesus knows about that. And he can walk with you through it. He's a high priest that has been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Benaiah's name, the, you put these together and they're just so powerful. Benaiah's name means God builds. God builds. Do you know he has a purpose in mind? And do you know he's building your life for his glory? Be still and know, I will be exalted among the heathen, I will be exalted in the earth. God has a reason for everything you go through, and he's trying to accomplish something through your life, and that something is his glory through you. That's kind of been my theme for all of the messages this week. You know how easy it is for us to look in the past and see the sovereignty of God. Oh, yes, I can see where God worked here and he worked here and he worked here. Yes, God has been in control all the way down through history. And it's easy for us to look to the future and say, oh, yes, someday God's going to rule and reign. He is the sovereign Lord and he will be the king of all the earth. I accept his sovereignty in the past and I believe his sovereignty for the future. You know what's hard to translate? His sovereignty right now today in my life. He's always at work. Do you know that? He never takes a day off. He never gets tired of you. I've met a few people after I've been around them a while, I, I want to go somewhere else for a while. God never gets tired of us. He's always, every single day, he's working toward his goal of sanctifying your life and making you more like Jesus. Isn't that a comforting thought? When we deal with fears and we go through heartaches and pressure and problems and trials and tribulation, recognizing that God knows and God is building something encourages us and and helps us to soften and mellow and accept whatever it is in our life that we are facing at that moment.
Job, worst possible suffering and loss, the worst possible uh, circumstances, friends who chided him for his sin in his life. Job knew that God knew. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Didn't he say that? And we see that God was building a life that for all of the existence of the world would be an example of God's faithfulness. Paul knew that God knew all the suffering he was going through and that God was building a life that would inspire countless millions of ministers and servants of the Lord. Joseph knew that God knew, didn't he? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God was building a life that we could look at later and say, God meant all of that for good. Let's put that into our lives right here this morning. He's building our lives and he's building something good. God knows and God is building your life. In 1895, Andrew Murray was in England staying with some friends and he was suffering from terrible back pain as a result of an injury from years before. One morning he was eating breakfast and his hostess came up and said, there's a woman downstairs who's in great distress and she's wondering if you would have any advice for her. Andrew Murray reached up and picked up a piece of paper off the table on which he had been writing. He said, I've just been writing this to myself. Would you please take it to her and just ask her to read it? She'll find it helpful. Here's what the paper said. First, he brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place In that, I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as a child, as his child, rather. And then he will make this trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace that he means to bestow. And last, in his good time, he will bring me out again. How and when? He knows Therefore say, therefore I say, he said, I'm here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time and his glory. And that is how you kill a lion in a pit on a snowy day. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.